Hello, and welcome back to the Whiskey Rebels, the only podcast about alcohol where the hosts are getting drunk. I'm Drew Brackbill. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm John Nelson. And today we're back with another balanced, sober discussion about the philosophical, economic, and regulatory history of alcohol. So today we're going to kind of go back to part of our namesake. Uh, we're going to talk about the whole history of whiskey, or at least the highlights, um, all the way from the very basic origins of distillation in ancient Mesopotamia to the large scale production and consumption of whiskey in America, the British Isles, and a lot of other regions around the world, too. Um, you know, usually think of uh, whiskey as being from America and Ireland and Scotland, which it is, um, but a lot of other regions uh, produce it, too, and we'll talk about that uh, towards the end of the episode. Um, and a lot of people around the world really love whiskey. Um, you know, next to a good German or British beer, it's definitely my favorite. Um, it's hard to hard to beat a whiskey, in my opinion, but... Drew, uh, you don't really like whiskey that much, do you? I, I really, uh, I, it's not that I don't like whiskey, it's that I like, and this isn't really a good explanation either because bourbon is just a kind of whiskey, but I like bourbon better than other kinds of whiskeys because I like the sort of smokier, I mean, I, I like I've described whiskey before as like tasting like a campfire, and I prefer my whiskey to taste like a campfire as opposed to like dirt, which is what regular whiskey tastes like to at least, me. At least scotch. Yeah. And... Uh, I don't know. I just prefer clear alcohols like gin a lot more. I act, I love gin, but like whiskey just doesn't do it for me. It just tastes so, I don't know. It's very brown. <laughs> it has a very brown flavor, but I don't hate it. <laughs> I guess we're uh, all entitled to our yeah, opinion. I'll, I mean, I'll I don't mix, like... I'll mix it with ginger ale. I mean, I, mean, I don't like gin, to be honest. Hedonist. So I guess we're compatible God, drinkers. Gin is so good. Just, I just, I don't know. I just got to mix it with the right stuff, though. That's you probably true. Straight. Yeah. Um, so whiskey and uh, I guess all other distilled spirits were really only possible with the advent of the distillation method, which is kind of this chemical process where you separate different substances from one another um, within a liquid mixture by evaporating them and condensing them, and you can do it uh, multiple times to, to separate the mixtures. Um, so in the case of whiskey, a fermented mixture of grains is evaporated and recondensed at just the right temperature for the alcohol to be separated um, from the rest of the mixture. Um, you do this a bunch of times, and uh, you get more of a pure alcohol in the final mixture. So, you know, like we talked about last episode, uh, a lot of aspects of modern civilization, including beer, originated in uh, ancient Mesopotamia. Um, distillation looks like the same story. Uh, it originated in Mesopotamia in the second millennium BC. Uh, so the ancient Mesopotamians uh, likely used distillation to create certain kinds of perfumes and aromatics. Uh, we actually find the first written record of distillation in Alexandria, Greece, around 100 AD, which describes the process of taking seawater and distilling it into pure drinking water. Uh, but by this time, there are no records of distillation being used for uh, alcohol production. Yeah, and the technology of distillation did evolve uh, considerably throughout the medieval Arab world after they started adopting Greek techniques, uh, with written records of that occurring around the 9th century. Uh, and that, you know, that's sort of a common thread about the medieval Arab world is that they adapted and, and translated a lot of ancient Greek writing mm -hmm. uh, and, and used a lot of the same technology even as well, mathematics especially. But apparently they also used distillation. Um, the technology eventually spread to Europe later in the first millennium when the Moors traveled in through Spain. And we finally find the first written records of the distillation of alcohol appearing in Italy around the 1200s where alcohol was distilled from wine which today we would know that drink as brandy. Uh, distillation in the Middle Ages was spread through monasteries, and it was largely used for medicinal purposes, um, for treating things like colic 
and even smallpox. And we saw the medicinal use of things like whiskey during the prohibition. Yeah, well, we the medicinal discussed. use of whiskey is as not just whiskey, but all distilled alcohols. Is, mm-hmm. so, yeah, that that's been around since the Middle Ages. I mean, to be honest, I would prefer whiskey to cough medicine any day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, cough medicine is even mostly just alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean the. The use of alcohol for as a for medicinal purposes goes back pretty far. When, you know, again to reference last episode, we talked about the use of beer being prescribed in ancient Egypt, which in some cases was actually like effective because it happened to contain you know primitive forms of antibiotics. Yeah, that's um, that just, still just, blowed me away. Yeah, it really <laughs> does. That was crazy. Um, There's got to be some other explanation for that, but maybe I don't know. Um, I want to believe that the Egyptians were unknowingly brewing like. <laughs> brewing uh, tetracycline, tetracycline yeah. and thought it was just magic beer. Like, <laughs> I really want, I want to believe that so bad. And I, yeah. it probably is. I mean, they did the experiments. So. Um, yeah, so distillation spread to Ireland and Scotland uh, sometime by the 15th century, though probably a few centuries before. Um, the first written record of whiskey is found in the 17th century annals of Quan McNoise. That's probably not how that's pronounced. Quan McNoise. Um, that one, yeah. That's probably not right. Yet. That's, that's more the <laughs> it's probably version. closer, maybe. <laughs> Clint McNeese. Um Yeah, in the historical account, it's written that a chieftain died in 1405 after taking a surfeit of aquavitae at Christmas. Uh, in Scotland, the first evidence of whiskey production comes from an entry in the Exchequer Rolls for 1494, where malt is sent to uh, Friar John Corr by order of the king to make aquavitae. Uh, enough to make about 500 bottles, which is a lot of whiskey. Yeah, so aquavitae, I guess in this sense, it used like it used to be the word for brandy, and it, then it became kind of the word for whiskey. Yeah, so the aquavitae actual, was its own thing. Yeah, yeah, and it was also it was also its own thing. But the like historical records and historians aren't. It's hard to tell exactly what they're talking about when they use these words, um, especially around the times where, or around the time when whiskey and these other kinds of spirits are being developed. It's not 100 percent certain like what exactly they're talking about um but it's likely around this time that whiskey was starting to be developed aquavite was like a predecessor spirit to many of the distilled alcohols that we have today it actually literally means uh, water of life in latin so that's (laughs) again coming back to the theme that booze is life but uh yeah (laughs) literally in this case Um, so around this time the practice of medicinal medicinal distillation um passed from a purely monastic setting to the secular uh, via professional medical practitioners of the time uh, who organized themselves in a thing called the Guild of Barber Surgeons, uh, which is a lot of fun. We talk about where, like, the barber thing, symbol thing comes from, and where, like, barbers and surgeons were actually the same people, yeah. which is terrifying. <laughs> in the day. Like, I would not trust my barber down the street to, like, cut me open and, and mess around with my organs. I still organs, don't think I'd so. trust my uh, surgeon to cut my hair, you know? Yes. That's a fair point. <laughs> I would trust a surgeon to cut my hair, but not a barber to cut my, like, tumor out. I don't, yeah, like, I mean, you mess up a haircut, you're, yeah, you're in bad like, news for like that. a month, but like, yeah. not the end of the world. Plus they have malpractice insurance for like such a hack job if they ever gave me an awful haircut. So I could <laughs> <laughs> them like, this is malpractice. <laughs> I was bad enough to look at already, but <laughs> look what you've done to me. Uh, I mean, you could probably sue them given if you like the you, damages were high enough. You can't sue a barber for giving you a bad... Well, you probably can, but Depends. I don't think it, it'd be thrown out of court. <laughs> you can sue think, anybody for anything, I guess. I mean, maybe if you're a celebrity with like enough it's yeah. like dependent enough on your image that, that like that would actually cause financial damage then maybe then explain like Katy perry 
Like, what's what's happening to her? Artists are different. Yeah. Oh, okay. Katy Perry's an artist now. Well, I understand. I yeah, see. well, an artist, but you can't see the quotation mark because we're yeah. this is an audio podcast. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> James the Fourth of Scotland. That's a whole discussion about yeah. how I hate that rappers and like musicians call themselves artists like well, some, of them, some of them are artists. some of them are artists some but for the most part they're not producing art they're producing music which is for mass consumption which uh, frustrates me anyway this is a whole that's other a whole another yeah. discussion we could have a podcast just all around about. drew's awful aesthetic sensibilities and yeah. his like elitism <laughs> yep all stemming from his lack of undying love for whiskey uh, uh so james the fourth of scotland uh king james reportedly uh really liked scotch uh um, and in 1506, the town of Dundee pr- purchased a large amount of whiskey uh, from the Guild of Barber Surgeons, which held the monopoly on um, production at the time. Um, so it was like just this really big thing that was starting to become uh, really important to the nation of Scotland. Um, however, between 1536 and 1541, King Henry VIII of England dissolved the monasteries throughout the land, sending the monks out into the general public. Uh, whiskey production then moved out of a monastic setting and into personal homes and farms as newly independent monks needed a way to uh, find to earn money for themselves. So in a lot of ways, this was actually the birth of the whiskey industry as like an actual industry. Yeah, that's, that's which is really interesting. really interesting. Like you had this this king who didn't really like Catholicism. And he's like, oh, I'm going to do this power move and kind of mess up everything <laughs> and just cause all sorts of historical ripples and one of those historical ripples was the industrialization of whiskey so i guess it wasn't all bad like i think we can put this in context though when you talk about henry the eighth like like put that in the context of the time where like the secession of the throne after a, a they'd just gotten done with the war of the roses which had literally pitched england into a civil war that that there were hundreds of thousands i don't know i won't say hundreds of thousands but hundreds possibly like very likely thousands of people died in the disease and the aftermath of that henry the eighth wants a son he wants you know a legitimate son not the bastard that he had that he could you know place on the throne after his death to assure the security of the realm and the pope is like oh we won't and at the time they didn't understand like how gender what you know leads to the gender of a child they didn't understand the chromosomes and Henry thought that his current wife and was convinced that his current wife could not produce a male heir for him. And to him, that was like the biggest and most important thing and big, and big enough and important enough for him to break with the Church of Rome, which like, I don't even think it was necessarily a power move. I think Henry was just desperate to secure an heir. And, you know, which is kind of a power move. Yeah. Way. But it people like to like, I guess, but people like to describe it as like, oh, you know, good old Henry VIII had six sorry wives. Some would say he ruined their lives. Like, as if he couldn't keep from sticking his, you know, royal ween wherever he wanted. But it, that's not what it was. It was that he, you know, could not just, A, he probably could, couldn't keep from sticking his ween. But also, he was desperate for an heir and couldn't find one. And that's why he pushes the monks out of their monasteries, seizes all their wealth. You know, I think that was just a perk of getting the break with the Catholic Church. And then that ends up leading to whiskey. So I guess we kind of have Henry's, like fear of irrelevance and fear of like his country descending into madness to blame for whiskey or you know i guess to blame is you guys would you guys wouldn't say to blame i would say thanks henry for this brown juice that tastes like a bug died in it i don't yeah i mean i'm just i'm just glad that i'm talking about whiskey i'm I'm glad that something came good something good came out of this though like personally 
Anglicanism. As an Anglican. Yeah. Like, Anglicanism did not come from this. You can blame it all on the Anglicans. Like, everyone thinks that Anglican can, Anglicanism came from this and absolutely did not at all. I don't know how you can possibly say that. Like, it did not. Yes, it 100% if you under, did. If you know the history of Anglicanism, it was around for a very long time as a tradition. It wasn't really Anglican, like, English. It was a, but a, it was tradition, a tradition of the Roman Catholic Church, like Celtic Catholicism was. Right. But it wasn't, like, its own actual thing until Henry was like, nah, if you, the Pope, like that. You cannot say that there would be a, an Anglican church in the same sense there is today. Well, it wouldn't be the Church Henry's of break. England. Yes. But, like, I, the Anglican church I go to is. is not part of the Church of England. Sure, but it... Yeah, okay. I mean, touche. Yeah. Like, but the American Anglican experience is very different from the English one. Oh, I agree with that. And, you know... But a lot of people don't know, see the difference. I don't know that you can call American Anglicans even Anglican in the set because Anglican just means part of the Church of England. This is a very digressive... <laughs> this is a digression. Uh, but anyway, during this time, around the time that Henry VIII was starting the Church of England... Uh, the distillation process was really still in its infancy and whiskey itself wasn't allowed to age in the same way that we, we age it now for years and years in these barrels. And as a result, it tasted very raw and sort of uh, medicinal and, and brutal almost compared to today's versions. Um, but Renaissance era whiskey was also very potent and was not diluted. So over time, whiskey evolved into a much smoother drink because we figured out that the longer you leave it in the barrel the better it becomes yeah and the uh, the old the oldest whiskey distillery that's still in operation today is the old bushmills distillery in northern ireland um it's in possession of a license to distill irish whiskey from 1608 um, although the company itself wasn't actually established until uh, 1784 by hugh anderson um in 1707 the acts of union merged england and scotland and uh, after that, like the taxes on these distilled spirits uh, rose dramatically. Uh, the English malt tax of 1725 actually seriously threatened the production of whiskey. And that led the majority of Scottish distilleries to actually go underground and start production at night, which uh, gave whiskey one of its more famous nicknames, Moonshine. Yeah, I did not know that that's where the moonshine name came Yeah, from. I had actually always assumed that that came about during Prohibition from like, yeah. the moonshiners that were running whiskey then. But uh, it actually because goes back uh, another couple hundred years. And I've always thought of moonshine as like a clear alcohol, that like not made from, uh, not made brown. But I guess if it well, was, I think it's it starts clear, right? Like whiskey is I clear until you put it in a barrel. Yeah, and then it gets brown from the yeah. barrels. That might be how it works. You would know. I, I didn't do the research for this yeah. one, but I'm mean, pretty. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's like okay. it's just a neutral alcohol, like anything else. And then when you put it in the barrel, that's where it gets its actual like smoky oh. flavor. So they don't put anything in whiskey to color it. It depends on the the country. No. Some some countries don't allow that at all. And some do. Okay. Um, so it just depends. Um, and like in the American Prohibition 200 years later, uh, this kind of de facto ban on whiskey in Scotland did not cause demand or production to disappear. Obviously, they still, the Scots still wanted to drink. So Scottish drinkers and distilleries simply hid their whiskey um, from the government, from government excise men or the, the guys that were coming to collect the taxes um, under altars and coffins, pretty much like wherever they could hide it. Um, it's, Probably a lot and of a coffin, eh? And a coffin. I mean, nothing better than a corpse-aged whiskey. Yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, that's really the way to go. Might get <laughs> might get some extra special flavors that way. Um, uh, and production continued underground to avoid the excessive tax. Um, and at one point, it was estimated that over half of Scotland's whiskey output was just illegal. Uh, they wow. just refused to pay the tax. 
Um, and smuggling actually became standard practice for 150 years. So it kind of makes the pro like prohibition look kind of weak. Like we could only go like I guess what, years 13 years. Uh, and Scotland was doing it for 150. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, it was quote unquote foreign government. They probably, the English probably didn't actually have that strong of a tax man system. They like nominally were like, Hey, Scotland, you're part of England now, but the Scottish are are like, no, we're not. I I don't know the the peculiarities of like how the English collected taxes in, you know, the late middle ages to early modern era. But like, I would guess it was probably pretty hard to collect a tax from Scottish Highlanders who, you know, like much like the Appalachians, the Scottish Highlands are very rugged, mountainous, remote areas with, you know, a dispersed population where it's probably, you know, you wander out there to those those crofts and, and everything. And if you're barking up the wrong tree, they will put a dirk in your eye. Like, <laughs> I can imagine that that's, that would have made it very difficult to collect a tax given the notoriously prickly disposition of the Scottish people. You know, they, their national flower is a thistle. <laughs> like, it's, it, it's a flower that can cut you. So, like... That's that's the Scottish. Okay. Um, so as an illustration, even by the 1820s, um, despite the fact that as many 14,000 illicit stills were being confiscated every year, more than half the whiskey consumed was being enjoyed without this payment. So even almost 100 years later after this, after this tax had been uh, put into place, there were still thousands and thousands of Scottish people just still evading this tax which is crazy they confiscated fourteen thousand stills a year that's a that's a lot of stills especially because like it's not like scotland is a huge country like, yeah it's, it's not, basically the people. size of a i mean probably boston. every family had one <laughs> not the size of boston basically the size of new england it's so. pretty small yeah but i mean if everyone every family had their own still that's know. true yeah There's, that's that's a good point who knows i mean and probably some maybe some of the bigger stills actually did pay some of the tax yeah to operate legally, I'm not exactly sure. Well, I mean, I mean, I think many of them did refuse to pay, and not, not only did they refuse to pay, they openly rioted against it, and that's kind of almost similar to what happened in, in America, like we said during the Whiskey Rebellion in our first episode, and for very similar reasons. I mean, enraged citizens in Glasgow drove out the English military and uh, actually destroyed the home that belonged to their uh, parliamentary representative, whose name was Daniel Campbell, and Campbell had voted for the tax on on the uh, the grain that had led to this sort of making it almost impossible to get whiskey legally. And so the people burned his house down, and a couple people died during the riots. And only after the arrival of an armed, uh, you know, armed group, uh, an army, basically, of 400 men, led by Field Marshal George Wade, some two weeks afterwards, the city finally sort of regained a sense of order. And several of those identified as ringleaders in the rioting were banished from the city forever, while others were publicly whipped for their roles on the riots. And the cost of the riots was calculated in the region of 10,000 pounds, which is about 920,000 pounds in, in today's money, which if you convert that to dollars, that's about twice twice that much. Yeah. Um, yeah, a little over a million dollars. Yeah, so it's quite a bit of money. And the city was required to sell off much of the common lands to raise necessary funds to compensate for the loss. Uh, it's kind of fun, though, too, here. Like, this, the Whiskey Rebellion was so much like greater than this in some ways it seems like the uh english military was able to go there with 400 guys and they kind of like backed down what, what like how many people was it in the whiskey rebellion it was like i want to say it was like thirteen thousand. it was something ridiculous was, like that was, was a show of force more than anything 
You right. Know, they I mean, barely even sure. needed those men to yeah. put the rebellion down. The re- but, whiskey rebels just kind of like melted away. Yeah, but it's just kind of interesting, like the difference there. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Um, and ironically, the the riots and their aftermath actually <clears throat> paved the way for whiskey uh, rather than beer to become the national drink of Scotland. Uh, Daniel Campbell used his portion of the uh, the compensatory funds to buy the island of Islay. Islay. Islay, I think. Islay. I think it's Islay. Yeah, that one um, off the coast of Scotland, which is about twenty five miles north of Ireland. Um, and on this island, Campbell started to grow large amounts of barley that would eventually be used by Scottish fa- farmers to produce malt whiskey. Um, and because it was owned by Campbell, the island was exempt from the Scottish Board of Excise. Uh, with the, fir- the, um, the first exciseman didn't show up on the island until 1797. Um, and Islay had a reputation for moonshine when Campbell bought the island, and he tried to reverse that with legal production. It's kind of funny that the guy whose house got burned down because of the whiskey tax decided he wanted to become a whiskey maker yeah and I, mean, I don't know if it's i don't know if he was actually like a whiskey guy or if he was just a barley guy i'm not sure the history is like super clear on that but yeah no no, he wasn't that into whiskey he just wanted the barley you know for whatever <laughs> for to feed to horses probably no you know what else do you grow bar and bread i guess yeah i mean barley you stuff other stuff yeah beer yeah yeah but oh, yeah barley yeah i mean that's just that's just crazy i mean you have a nice example of some some political favors going on here too you yeah. know you're in parliament so classic you, you write the rules story <laughs> you write the rules so you can do whatever you want i mean i mean it kind of reminds me of what we talked about um with the whiskey rebellion of how uh you know washington owned like the largest distillery he yeah. eventually opened like i think it was yeah. like the largest distillery in the after, country, right? after yeah. you know it shut after the uh, the tax you know took a couple of years to shut down like all the small uh, distilleries it's, but like i didn't even think about that because when we were talking about the Whiskey Rebellion, I was like, oh, no, he didn't open his distillery until well after, like, a couple years after the tax was passed. But, like, by then, Washington's competitors would have been run out of business by his tax. That's, oh, man. Oh, yeah, so this is like Almost exactly the same thing. I mean, this, and this yeah. is not even that long, long, long before the Whiskey Rebellion. Less than 100 yeah. years before, the same thing happened. Yeah. It's crazy. I and mean, history gets, just repeats itself. It's cyclical. Um, yeah. So in uh, 1823, the United Kingdom passed the Excise Act, um, which finally legalized the distillation of whiskey um, for a fee, of course. Uh, you had to get a license of some kind. And this put a practical end to the large scale production of um, the, at least the illegal production of Scottish moonshine. Um, Scotland is you know, definitely known for its malt whiskey, largely coming from this mass production of, of barley and islay. But in 1831, Aeneas Coffee invented the coffee still, which is a device. Um, that enabled the continuous product process of distillation to take place, um, as opposed to making whiskey in batches. Um, you can kind of continually distill things through these really tall column um, distills. Uh, stills. They're pretty cool looking. Um, but this led to the production of grain whiskey, which is kind of like a, a different, uh, less intense spirit than the traditional malt whiskey. Um, and then in 1850, Andrew Usher began producing a blended whiskey that mixed the grain and the malt whiskeys together, um, which was kind of able to extend the appeal of scotch to a considerably wider and more international market. Um, scotch malt whiskey probably introduced that to people who have never tasted it before, and they're like, oh, God, what is this? Um, we kind of kind of blend it together, kind of push it in there, and people are like, oh, this is, this is pretty cool. This is pretty good. What is the difference between the use of uh, grain and the use of malt? Because I know malt is a, a preparation on a specific cereal, typically. A yeah, so, yeah, malted barley... Um, so I'm guessing, gr- I'm guessing grain whiskey would be more of like a wheat, mm. but I, I I don't actually know the practical differences there. 
Well, I'm sure. I'm sure, there are. I guess it's probably just less preparation you have to do to the grains beforehand to use them in the drink. But in America, you know, whiskey also because of all of the Irish and Scottish immigrants into the United States in its early years, whiskey became very important, and we've already discussed that importance of whiskey in America in our first episode. But America's most important contribution to the development of whiskey is probably the sour mash process, which is loosely credited to Dr. James C. Crow, uh, the old crow of whom his his bourbon is still being made and is one of my favorite bourbons. <laughs> one of the cheapest. <laughs> it's cheap and good, yeah. It's surprising how good it is considering its price. Uh, but historians are really unsure of the sour mash process's true origin, and it probably wasn't James Crow. I mean, it, they, they'd been doing it long before then, but he maybe perfected the process. But the sour mash sour mash process uh, uses material from an older batch of the mash, which is what the water runs through and is boiled through to create the final whiskey product, and that's like the grains. So you take some from the past mash and you put it in the new mash to start the fermentation of a new batch, which improves consistency between batches so every bottle is as close to the previous as possible, and most American whiskeys and bourbons are now made using that process. Yeah, you have, I think Jack Daniels is probably the most prominent that like, hey, we're sour mash whiskey. You kind yeah. of see that right on the bottle. Um, so you have American whiskeys. Um, we also have bourbon that became really popular during this time as well. Yeah. So distilling was likely brought to Kentucky by uh, Scots-Irish in the like, late 18th century. But unlike the malt or grain whiskeys of the British Isles, bourbon is made mostly from corn, which is a big deal in America, <laughs> even to the day, mostly because of subsidies. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, a good, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good. Corn taste. tastes awful, dude. Really? You don't like corn? I, I don't like canned corn. I like uh, corn on the well, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, you got to get it in, like in mid to late August, and that's the only time when corn is. That's good. fair. Um, but yeah, no. So bourbon, it's it's made with corn. Uh, it's also aged using new charred oak barrels, uh, which are what give it the sort of iconic reddish color and distinctive taste. Um, and bourbon, very likely originated in Bourbon County, Kentucky. Um, you know, historians aren't exactly sure of its like exact geographical origin. Um, if it didn't originate there, it was certainly like most popularized there. Yeah, and the legend has it that Elijah Craig, who was a Baptist minister, was the first person to age whiskey in these charred barrels, which give it the red color. And the distiller uh, named Jacob Spears was the first to label his product as bourbon whiskey. But neither of these stories are considered 100% fact, and they're kind of considered local legends and wives' tales by historians. The modern form of bourbon, though, took its took its form in the late 19th century, which has led Louisville historian Michael Veach to claim that the whiskey was named after Bourbon Street in New Orleans, not Bourbon County in Kentucky, because New Orleans was a major port where shipments of Kentucky whiskey sold well as a cheaper alternative to French cognac. So, I mean, I think that's a plausible explanation, but being as I am a fan of God's country, I want to believe that it comes from Bourbon County, Kentucky, <laughs> and not... Bourbon Street in that godless wasteland, New Orleans. Excuse but, me, New Orleans is one of my favorite cities. <laughs> actually, so having been I take to offense Nola, to that. It, it, yeah, it is actually New Orleans. It is, it is very beautiful. It's very cool. But, yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, I don't. It's a wild place, though. <laughs> I don't actually. I mean, I'm obviously not a historian, so I don't actually know. But like, it could be both. Like, I, I don't know. It just seems like yeah, it could be. We both. all know bourbons from Kentucky, so the yeah. fact that like if it's not actually from Bourbon County, if that's not where the name comes from, that just seems. Crazy but bourbon is still from Kentucky. It's just the yeah. name might come from a place other than yeah Bourbon. i mean it could it maybe it's it both from, too yeah maybe i mean it probably was sold this sold made very well county is sold very well on bourbon Street. yeah i mean maybe we should call it bourbon <laughs> it could be just reinforced the two reinforced yeah. each other as well um it's hard to tell 
Um, but unfortunately, um, as we discussed in our episode on prohibition, the bourbon industry, as well as many other uh, beer and liquor industries, was all but wiped out in 1919 uh, with the passage of the 19th Amendment, uh, which illegalized the production and mostly the, and in some states the consumption of alcohol. Um, the first distillery to reopen in Bourbon County, where, where bourbon probably comes from, after Prohibition, opened in late 2014, which is over 80 years after Prohibition ended in Wait, 1933. Yeah, it was actually illegal. Like, Bourbon County, is Ill- it's still illegal to consume alcohol in Bourbon oh, County. Oh, yeah, because it's a dry county. Because it's a dry county in yeah. Kentucky. I didn't know that there weren't and any they distilleries. And they there. finally reopened this distillery in 2014. That is so... So there's, like, you can actually... I think you can go there, and you can, like, taste it, and you can buy a bottle of it. But you can't But you can't actually the drink it in the, the county. You That's have to, like, go across the county border. Classic Kentucky. It's classic <laughs> Kentucky. Yeah. Um, yeah, and as, as we mentioned, as we're mentioning now, you know, um, Kentucky has extremely strict alcohol laws, which... I just find really interesting as it's like the historical home of bourbon, like the historical home of whiskey. In fact, like at least in America that we like Kentucky is the whiskey state and you can't drink it in like half the counties there. That's kind of funny. Yeah. And I mean, as I think about it, I did know that like most of the big whiskey distilleries in Kentucky that were making bourbon weren't actually in Bourbon County, but I didn't realize because Jim Beam is in a different closer to Lexington. Anyway, but that's like, that's really 2014. That was like three years ago. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, bourbon's not the only kind of distinctive American whiskey. Uh, there's also American varieties of rye whiskey, rye malt whiskey, malt whiskey, wheat whiskey, and corn whiskey, which has to be at least 80% corn as opposed to the 51% requirement for, for bourbon. Wow. Why uh, not just drink a Coca-Cola at that point? Like, yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> if you want something that's 80% corn, you know, crack you open a like, book. Or just, you know, stick some corn in the blender. You know? Yeah. Jeez. At that point, like 80%, that is that is a lot of corn. It's more corn um, than water. In there. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, as well as the blends and combinations of different kinds, um, yeah, obviously bourbon is the sort of most popular and iconic. And in 1962, Congress declared uh, bourbon whiskey the U.S.'s uh, official distilled spirit. Um, there's also Tennessee whiskey, which is like sort of a subset of bourbon. Um, like it is legally bourbon. Um, it fulfills like all the requirements that we talked about. Uh, but it also like adds this additional requirement of filtering the whiskey through a layer of maple charcoal before it's put into barrels for aging. Um, it's like sort of the most popular that is Jack Daniels. That's sort yeah. of like the most iconic uh, Tennessee whiskey. And I, you know, not being much of a whiskey guy, I do have to say I really, I really like Jack Daniels, and I actually prefer it to most other forms of brown spirit. And uh, I, I, it's got to be that filtering process that makes mm-hmm. it so much smoother. But I don't know. I mean, I'm probably talking through my ass. But as, no, as, 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 as I typically do. As, as what most of this is. Um, <laughs> no, but no, I agree. Like, I love whiskey. And I think you can taste I the think, difference. I think Jack Daniels is really good, yeah. but it's just, it's also just really expensive for some reason. Like I think at our local liquor, liquor store, I can get this, like for the amount I can get of Old Crow, it's like $20 for yeah. like a massive <laughs> jug of Old Crow. It cost me like $50 to get Jack Daniels. And I'm like, Jack Daniels is much better, but I don't think it's two and a half times as good. Like it's not yeah. that much better. Yeah, that's fair. And like if I'm going to go to a bar, like I'll probably order a Jack and Coke versus a whiskey and Coke because it's going to be like... Same in price. dc it's going to be like 12 dollars <laughs> yeah. versus 11 dollars yeah. um well they'll, i mean they'll, they'll charge you full price for the bottom shelf rail whiskeys too yeah yeah. yeah well yeah dc just thinks yeah um. i mean you know whiskey is hardly just an american thing either uh it's hardly a scottish or irish thing too i mean many other countries around the world have developed their own version of whiskey and their own brands I and mean, canada is home to crown royal canadian club and seagram's 
Uh, and those Canadian whiskeys have to be aged for at least three years. And while they're often called rye whiskey, they actually don't contain or don't need to contain rye grains. I think Canadian whiskey is... Uh, Awful. I was going to say not as good. Um, it's pretty bad. Yeah, I don't want to offend my potential, you know, my, my future wife who's Canadian, but I think that the whiskeys of her country are not very good. Yeah. But, uh, I think that's fair. They're like most experts, quote unquote. Like, yeah. Most people who, who are very well known, like know a lot about whiskey, do not consider Canadian whiskey like even, like you can't even put it on a list of, of good whiskeys. Like Crown Royal is probably their best one. And even it's not It's great. still pretty mediocre. It's still pretty yeah. bad. Or classic, uh, the, the old uh, Costco classic Kirkland brand seven year Canadian whiskey. <laughs> that just sounds. <laughs> I've never tried it. And that I sounds do so not play creep, Like just so. Yeah. Well, Costco so brand stuff is usually actually pretty good. But yeah, I, like, I don't know. I, like their I don't know about I their, like their bagels. alcohol. I mean, I I've had Costco beer before, and like I remember noting like a distinct like meaty aftertaste. Which yeah, is you're not, right. I do. Which is that. not how something does it, how does you would pour in a, it in a beer. Sort of taste like ham. How does it compare to like Trader Joe's beer? Uh, they're both bad or are they both diff- like different I mean they're like bad in different ways okay. I don't think Trader Joe's beer is actually that bad from my experience my limited experience with it actually, I don't I've, think I've ever had it I've just heard it's it actually bad. not awful it's it's. I would say it's fine it's really and cheap. much of it is in compliance with the Reinheitsgebot that is weirdly true <laughs> apparently that's weirdly true so um, you know most, most countries with historical ties to the British Isles have developed some sort of whiskey industry Canada as an example um, but India also has kind of a, a booming whiskey industry. And in fact, India consumes actually almost as much whiskey as the rest of the world put together. Well, they have almost as much people. But probably the because they have almost as much people as the world <laughs> yeah, put together. That was grammatically um, correct, but you get, the, you get the, there's a lot of people in India, so it's not a surprise. There's a crap ton of people in yeah. India, and most likely they, you know, if they drink any amount of whiskey at all, they're drinking a lot of whiskey. Yeah. Um, however, Indian whiskey is more like a rum than an actual whiskey. They're allowed to call it whiskey, but... The beverage that they call whiskey is actually distilled from fermented molasses, like a rum, um, with only a small portion of it actually containing any traditional malt whiskey. And it's usually only around like 10 to 12%. Yeah, rum is another one we should talk about. I love rum, too, actually, weirdly. I don't. I don't know. Like, we have such opposite alcohol yeah, tests. I don't know. Tastes. We've got to do an episode on rum. But, and as, as bad as that sounds to me, like, I don't know, I, I do kind of want to try Indian whiskey because... It sounds weird. It sounds <laughs> yeah, weird. But like, I, I hate rum, but I'd sure love to try but this guess, Indian like, I, whiskey, I t- which is just rum. T- you want some whiskey, and I taste it, and it tastes like rum, and I'm like, that's interesting. I yeah, guess, you know, I guess. It's worth a shot. Um, Japan also has their own version of whiskey. Uh, production began around 1870, although the first commercial distillery, uh, Yamazaki, didn't actually open until 1924. Um, the style of Japanese whiskey is most similar to scotch. Um, in fact, I actually just tried some yeah, for the first time it. today. Um, it was interesting. It's uh, very, it's pretty smooth. Um, it's a lot lighter tasting, I think. It's almost floral. Than, yeah, it's very floral. It's, it's it might just be my preconceptions about Japan <laughs> <laughs> applying to this whiskey that's from there. Like, no, but I, I think it. Yeah, no, I think it actually does taste like that. Um, um, but so. yeah, I mean, t- two of the most uh, best known brands um, are of Japanese whiskey are uh, Suntory and Nika. Yeah, and so yeah, I guess the, the kind we tried was sun was a Suntory, mm-hmm. um, and it's actually a blend, a, a, a blend, as a lot of whiskeys are um, between the three main distilleries in Japan. Oh. Um, so if you buy like kind of the single batch, single malt version of each whiskey, they're like eighty or ninety dollars a bottle. It's super expensive, um, but you can buy the the Suntory. So that's a pretty um, good sort of a- analogy of 
not an analogy, but it's a pretty good like blend. It, uh, you're trying all of the different right. Japanese whiskeys yeah. at once. Sort of. That's sort of how that works. Um, but yeah, and the Suntory, the Suntory at least around here is like forty-ish dollars a bottle, which is not pretty good for like a, a good bottle of whiskey. Yeah. And so other countries um, have also developed whiskey industries, um, actually fairly recently. So Australia, Denmark, Finland, Germany, and Taiwan have all uh, kind of developed their industries in the last thirty to forty years. Um, so it's kind of fun to see how. Um, beer and wine and all sorts of other kinds of alcohols have you know been around in a lot of different countries for hundreds or thousands of years. Basically, all um, of recorded human history. Yeah, most of it. Um, at least beer for sure. Since we've had you know barley, we've had beer. <laughs> yeah, and we're, we've been the better for it. Really. Yeah, I, um, I would definitely say so. But yeah, these countries in the last thirty or forty years have really started to have actual whiskey industries, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, you get to see whiskey coming on more to the, on the international stage more than just America or more Britain. Well, what about Taiwanese? To me, I, I just don't think of Taiwan as like a place where they would make great whiskey because I associate whiskey with like cold. I associate it with the Anglosphere. But apparently, Taiwan has a great climate for it. I wouldn't have thought of Japanese whiskey very good either until yeah, this morning. And I tried it. So it's yeah. Definitely not my favorite, but it's, yeah, yeah I drink it's it. Different, well, Japan it's has a very... Uh, a climate that would be very similar to Scotland, actually, in a lot of places. It's very they, elevated. It can be very cold. They also have more of a history with England, too, though, right? Or at least of, yeah, of Europe. Europe. Well, so does Taiwan. I guess but they like, do, yeah. The Taiwanese, this is something I was reading, because of how warm it is in Taiwan, the Taiwanese climate is especially creates an especially uh, potent fiery whiskey because of the way mm. the barrels breathe in the, in the Taiwanese aging Interesting. places. I actually, having, having read about whiskey from other places, I did kind of know that. But, like, it, it's... So it's different from, like... The, the more northerly varietals of whiskey, but it's not bad by any means, apparently. So, it, and that is another thing we can talk about is that depending on where the whiskey is made, it's less about where it's made, but it's more about where it's aged. And one of the reasons why whiskey is historically done so well in Bourbon County is because the climate there is great for it. Uh, it's a temperate climate, and the, the passing of the seasons leads to the barrels expanding and contracting. And so, you know, I think it'll be interesting as we see whiskey spreading from being just an Anglo-American thing all over the world, what kind of different variations in the flavor and taste arise from the different places where it's being brewed. I mean, what could Finnish whiskey taste like in, in such a cold clime? You know, I'm, I think it's fascinating. And maybe, maybe someday they'll make a whiskey that I will want to drink. <laughs> I mean, maybe the distilleries... Might be, are urban. probably like climate controlled though too maybe no actually really? most of them the distilleries are but the place where the aging process happens is climate controlled only in the sense that they put all these big ass barrels into the aging rooms and they just leave them there right. yeah. I guess that makes sense though because so in that's mo- the tradition in way. most countries whiskey has to be aged for at least three years yeah. I mean, a good scotch is aged for 10. Yeah. I mean, so those things are in there for a long time, and you don't really want to take the, the money or also, the energy the, to actually Also, how the hell do you them? turn a profit on whiskey if you have to wait three years before you can start? I have it? no idea. I mean, yeah. so, that's something I'd want, I've You'd actually have to have wanted to do research on. a lot of capital up front. Yeah, that's something like, I've wanted to do research on. And, like, I mean, you say that they're actually craft whiskey is sort of a thing, um, but it's, it's hard to be a thing because you have small batches. And with beer, it's very easy to do. You can turn that around in a couple of months. Yeah, but and, it and make bad. a profit. <laughs> we, the beer we made tasted sure, so but, bad. But crap, but crap. I think that's more of like our own incompetence rather us. than that's, yeah. so, like, well, that's us. That's yeah. us, sure. But like, but a craft brewery can do that and do it turn around pretty quickly, and it tastes pretty darn good. Yeah, whiskey, unless you're cheating, which they do do sometimes. They they drop like 
maple or oak chips into the whiskey to try to make it go faster on a little bit more surface surface area can kind of help it age more quickly than normal but even then like if you have a whiskey that's aged for less than two years it just does not taste good. it doesn't taste like whiskey it doesn't because taste like it whiskey. isn't because it's not it's a yeah. moonshine of it's just not it just doesn't taste good and so small uh, small like craft distilleries, smaller small scale places that don't have a lot of upfront capital just can't do it because it, the amount of time it takes to produce a good whiskey is just way too long to actually be able to turn a profit. And the centrality of time in the whiskey production process wasn't something that was really understood until well into the time at which they had been making this distilled spirit. Like I, I don't know, we didn't talk about how when did they figure out that you had to leave it in barrels for a long ass time for it to be good? And I know that there's like an anecdote about like some guy put his whiskey in a barrel and they found that the whiskey that had like traveled further or been in the barrel longer tasted better. I don't, but like, I don't know that they actually know when you, when they figured it out, but I mean, it's probably just like most things, food and drink. It was just on accident. I mean, yeah. how did we find oh, out we that left coffee this, this box. keeps you awake? <laughs> yeah. How did we find out that alcohol makes you a little weird. Like how like how do we find out all this? How do we find out that like those bad mushrooms kill you because someone yeah. died? Yeah. I mean, all of all of human history is just accidents and hopefully you don't die. Everybody else building on everybody else's accidents. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes those accidents are Happy. really awesome and sometimes yeah. those accidents are whiskey. Someday, you know, some Which monk... is also really awesome. Yeah. Which is also really awesome. <laughs> sometimes those accidents are whiskey. <laughs> the end. Uh, but no, like some monk some somewhere just left a barrel of whiskey in his basement for too long and was like, oh, shoot, maybe we should have drunk that. Opens mm-hmm. it up and realizes, oh, this is way better than it was. That's my guess. Yeah, that's probably, probably exactly what happened. Yeah. All right. uh, well, I think that's our show for today. Uh, if you enjoyed it, feel free to subscribe and share. Uh, you can like us on Facebook as the Whiskey Rebels Podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at Whiskey Rebcast. This has been the Whiskey Rebels. I'm Josh Evans. I'm Drew Brackbill. And I'm John Nelson. Enjoy our podcast responsibly. Uh-huh.